The Time Traders by Andre Norton. Chapter 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis. The Time Traders by Andre Norton. Chapter 12. Ross dropped from the web-slung chair to the floor and made himself as small as possible under the platform at the front of the cabin. Here, where there was a smaller control board and two seats placed closely together, the odd, unpleasant odor clung and became stronger to Ross's senses as he waited tensely for the climbers to appear. Though he had searched, there was nothing in sight even faintly resembling a weapon. In a last desperate bid for freedom, he crept back to the stairwell. He had been taught a blow during his training period, one which required a precise delivery, and he had been warned was often fatal. He would use it now. The climber was very close. A cropped head arose through the floor opening, and Ross struck. Knowing as his hand chopped against the folds of a fur hood that he had failed, but the emphasis of that unexpected blow saved him after all. With a choked cry, the man disappeared, crashing down upon the one following him. A scream and shouts were heard from below, and a shot ripped up the well as Ross scrambled away from it. He might have delayed the final battle, but they had him cornered. He faced that back bleakly. They need only sit below and let nature take its course. His session in the lifeboat had restored his strength, but a man could not live forever without food and water. However, he had brought himself perhaps a yard of time which must be put to work. Turning to examine the seats, Ross discovered that they could be unhooked from their webbing swings. Freeing all of them, he dragged their weight to the stairwell and jammed them together to make a barricade. It could not hold long against any determined push from below, but, he hoped, it would deflect bullets if some sharpshooter tried to wing him by ricochet. Every so often there was a crash of a shot and some shouting, but Ross was not going to be drawn out of cover by that. He paced around the control cabin, still hunting for a weapon. The symbols on the levers and buttons were meaningless to him. They made him feel frustrated, because he imagined that among their countless array were some that might help him out of the trap if he could only guess their use. Once more he stood by the platform thinking. This was a point from which the ship had been sailed, in the air or in some now frozen sea. These control boards must have given the ship's master the means not only of propelling the vast bulk, but of unloading and loading cargo, lighting, heating, ventilation, and perhaps defense. Of course, every control might be dead now, but he remembered that in the lifeboat the machines had worked successfully, fulfilled expertly the duty for which they had been constructed. The only step remaining was to try his luck. Having made his decision, Ross simply shut his eyes as he had in a very short and almost forgotten childhood, turned around three times and pointed. Then he looked at to see where luck had directed him. 
His finger indicated a board before which there had been three seats, and he crossed to it slowly, with a sense that once he touched the controls, he might inaugurate a chain of events he could not stop. The crash of a shot underlined the fact that he had no other recourse. Since the symbols meant nothing, Ross concentrated on the shapes of the various devices and chose one which vaguely resembled the type of light switch he had always known. Since it was up, he pressed it down, counting to twenty slowly as he waited for a reaction. Below the switch was an oval button marked with two wiggles and a double dot in red. Ross snapped it level with the panel, and when it did not snap back, he felt somehow encouraged. When the two levers flanking the button did not push in or move up or down, Ross pulled them out without even waiting to count off. This time he had results. A crackling of noise with a sing-song rhythm, the volume of which, low at first, arose to a drone filled the cabin. Ross, deafened by the din, twisted first one lever and then the other until he had brought the noise to a less piercing howl. But he needed action, not just noise. He moved from behind the first chair to the next one. Here were five oval buttons, marked in the same vivid green as that which trimmed his clothing. Two wiggles, a dot, a double bar, a pair of entwined circles, and a crosshatch. Why make a choice? Recklessness bubbled to the surface, and Ross pushed all the buttons in rapid succession. The results were, in a measure, spectacular. Out of the top of the control board rose a triangle of screen, which steadied and stood firm, while across it played a rippling wave of color. Meanwhile, the sing-song became an angry squawking, as if in protest. Well, he had something, even if he didn't know what it was. And he had also proved that the ship was alive. However, Ross wanted more than a squawk of exasperation, which was exactly what the noise had become. It almost sounded, Ross decided as he listened, as if he were being expertly chewed out in another language. Yes, he wanted more than a series of squawks and a fanciful display of light waves on a screen. At the section of board before the third and last seat, there was less choice, only two switches. As Ross flicked up the first, the pattern on the screen dwindled into a brown color shot with cream in which there was a suggestion of a picture. Suppose one didn't put the switch all the way up. Ross examined the slot in which the bar moved and now noted a series of tiny point marks along it. Selective? It would not do any harm to see. First he hurried back to the cork of chairs he had jammed into the stairwell. The squawks were now coming only at intervals, and Ross could hear nothing to suggest that his barrier was being forced. He returned to the lever and moved it back two notches, standing open-mouthed at the immediate result. The cream of brown streaks were making a picture. Moving another notch down caused the picture to skitter back and forth on the screen. With memories of TV tuning to guide him, Ross brought the other lever down to a matching position, and the dim and shadowy images leaped into clear and complete focus. But the color was still brown, not the black and white he had expected. Only, he was also looking into a face. Ross swallowed, his hand grasping one of the strings of chair webbing for support. 
perhaps because in some ways it did resemble his own, that the face was more preposterously non-human. The visage on the screen was sharply triangular, with a small, sharply pointed chin and a jawline running at an angle from a broad upper face. The skin was dark, covered largely with a soft and silky down, out of which hooked a curved and shining nose set between two large round eyes. On top of that astonishing head, the down rose to a peak not unlike a cockatoo's crest. Yet there was no mistaking the intelligence in those eyes nor the other's amazement at sight of Ross. They might have been staring at each other through a window. Squawk! Squeak! Squawk! The creature in the mirror, on a vision plate or outside the window, moved its absurdly small mouth in time to those sounds. Ross swallowed again and automatically made answer. Hello! His voice was a weak whistle, and perhaps it did not reach the furry-faced one for he continued his questions, if questions they were. Meanwhile, Ross, over his first stupefaction, tried to see something of the creature's background. Though the objects were slightly out of focus, he was sure he recognized fittings similar to those about him. He must be in communication with another ship of the same type, and one which was not deserted. Furry Face had turned his head away to squawk rapidly over his shoulder a shoulder which was crossed by a belt or sash with an elaborate pattern. Then he got up from his seat and stood aside to make room for the one he had summoned. If Fairy Face had been a startling surprise, Ross was now to have another. The man who now faced him on the screen was totally different. His skin registered as pale, cream-colored, and his face was far more human in shape, though it was hairless as was the smooth dome of his skull. When one became accustomed to that egg slickness, the stranger was not bad-looking, and he was wearing a suit which matched the one Ross had taken from the lifeboat. This one did not attempt to say anything. Instead, he stared at Ross long and measuringly, his eyes growing colder and less friendly with every second of that examination. Ross had resented Kilgarry's back at the project but the Major could not match Baldy for the sheer weight of unpleasant warning he could pack into a look. Ross might have been startled by Furry Face, but now his stubborn streak arose to meet this implied challenge. He found himself breathing hard and glaring back with an intensity which he hoped would get across and prove to Baldy that he could not have everything his own way if he proposed to tangle with Ross. His preoccupation with the stranger on the screen betrayed Ross into the hands of those from below. He heard their attack on the barricade too late. By the time he turned around, the cork of seats was heaved up and a gun was pointing at his middle. His hands went up in small reluctant jerks as that threat held him where he was. Two of the fur-clad reds climbed into the control chamber. Ross recognized the leader as Asher's double the man he had followed across time. He blinked for just an instant as he faced Ross and then shouted an order at his companion. The other spun Murdoch around, bringing his hands down behind him to clamp his wrists together. Once again, Ross fronted the screen and saw Baldy watching the whole scene with an expression suggesting that he had been shocked out of his complacent superiority. Ah! 
Ross's captors were staring at the screen and the unearthly man there. Then one flung himself at the control panel, and his hands whipped back and forth, restoring to other silence both screen and room. What are you? The man who might have been Ash spoke slowly in the beaker tongue, drilling Ross with his stare as if by the force of his will alone he could pull the truth out of the, his prisoner. What do you think I am? Ross countered. He was wearing the uniform of Baldy, and he had clearly established contact with the time owners of this ship. Let that worry the red. But they did not try to answer him. At a signal he was led to the stair. To descend that ladder with his hands behind him was almost impossible, and they had to pause at the next level to unclasp the handcuffs and let him go free. Keeping a gun on him carefully, they hurried along, trying to push the pace while Ross delayed all he could. He realized that in his recognition of the power of the gun back in the control chamber, his surrender to his threat, he had betrayed his real origin, so he must continue to confuse the trail to the project in every possible way left to him. He was sure that this time they would not leave him in the first convenient crevice. He knew he was right when they covered him with a fur parka at the entrance to the ship, once more manacling his hands and dropping a noose leash on him. So they were taking him back to their post here. Well, in the post was a time transporter which could return him to his own kind. It would be, it must be possible to get to that. He gave his captors no more trouble, but trudged, outwardly dispirited, along the rutted way through the snow up the slope and out of the valley. He did manage to catch a good look at the globe ship. More than half of it, he judged, was below the surface of the ground. To be so buried, it must either have lain there a long time, or, if it were an air vessel, crashed hard enough to dig itself that partial grave. Yet Ross had established contact with another ship like it, and neither of the creatures he had seen were human, at least not human in any way he knew. Ross chewed on that as he walked. He believed that those with him were looting the ship of his cargo, and by its size, that cargo must be a large one. But cargo from where? Made by what hands? What kind of hands? En route to what port? And how had the Reds located the ship in the first place? There were plenty of questions and very few answers. Ross clung to the hope that somehow he had endangered the Reds' job here by activating the communication system of the derelict and calling the attention of its probable owners to its fate. He also believed that the owners might take steps to regain their property. Baldy impressed him deeply during those few moments of silent appraisal, and he knew he would not like to be on the receiving end of any retaliation from the other. Well, now he had only one chance to keep the Reds guessing as long as he could and hope for some turn of fate which would allow him to try for the time transport. How the plate operated he did not know. But he had been transferred here from the Beaker Age, and if he could return to that time, escape might be possible. He had only to reach the river and follow it down to the sea, for the sub was to make rendezvous at intervals. The odds were overwhelmingly against him, and Ross knew it. But there was no reason, he decided, 
to lie down and roll over dead to please the reds. As they approached the post, Ross realized how much skill had gone into its construction. It looks as if they were merely coming up to the outer edge of a glacier tongue. Had it not been for the track in the snow, there would have been no reason to suspect that the ice covered anything but a thick core of its own substance. Ross was shoved through the white-walled tunnel to the building beyond. He was hurried through the chain of rooms to a door and thrust through, his hands still fastened. It was dark in the cubby and colder than it had been outside. Ross stood still, waiting for his eyes to adjust to the gloom. It was several moments after the door had slammed shut that he caught the faint thud, a dull and hollow sound. Who is here? He used the beaker speech, determined to keep to the rags of his cover, which probably was a cover no longer. There was no reply. But after a pause, that distant beat began again. Ross stepped cautiously forward, and by the simple method of running face full into the walls, discovered that he was in a bare cell. He also discovered that the noise lay behind the left-hand wall, and he stood with his ear flat against it, listening. The sound did not have the regular rhythm of a machine in use. There were odd pauses between some blows. Others came in a quick rain. It was as if someone were digging. Were the Reds engaged in enlarging their ice-bound headquarters? Having listed for a considerable time, Ross doubted that, for the sound was too irregular. It seemed almost as if the longer pauses were used to check up on the result of labor. Was it the extent of the excavation or the continued preservation of secrecy? Ross slipped down along the wall, his shoulders still resting against it, and rested with his head twisted so he could hear the tapping. Meanwhile, he flexed his wrist inside the hoops which confined them, and folded his hands as small as possible, tried to slip them through the rings. The only result was that he chaffed the skin raw to no advantage. They had not taken off his parka, and in spite of the chill about him, he was too warm. Only that part of his body covered by the suit he had taken from the ship was comfortable. He could almost believe that it possessed some built-in conditioning device. With no hope of relief, Ross rubbed his hands back and forth against the wall, scraping the hoops on his wrist. The distant pounding had ceased, and this time the pause lengthened into so long a period that Ross fell asleep, his head falling forward on his chest, his raw wrist still pushed against the surface behind him. He was hungry when he awoke, and with that hunger his rebellion sparked into flame. Awkwardly, he got to his feet and lurched along to the door through which he had been thrown where he proceeded to kick at the barrier. The cushiony stuff forming the soles of his tights muffled most of the force of those blows. But some noise was heard outside, for the door opened and Ross faced one of the guards. Food? I want to eat. He put into the beaker language all the resentment boiling in him. The fellow ignored him, reached in a long arm, and nearly tossing the prisoner off balance, dragged him out of the cell. Ross was marched into another room to face what appeared to be a tribunal. Two of the men there he knew, Asher's double 
and the quiet man who had questioned him back in the other time station. The third, clearly one of greater authority, regarded Ross bleakly. Who are you? the quiet man asked. Rasa, son of Gertie, and I would eat before I make talk with you. I have not done any wrong that you should treat me as a barbarian who has stolen salt from the trading post. You are an agent, the leader corrected him dispassionately, of whom you will tell us in due time. But first you shall speak of the ship, of what you found there, and why you meddled with the controls. Wait a minute before you refuse, my young friend. He raised his hand from his lap, and once again Ross faced an automatic. Ah, I see that you know what I hold. Odd knowledge for an innocent broad-age trader. And please have no doubts about my hesitation to use this. I shall not kill you naturally, the man continued, but there are certain wounds which supply a maximum of pain and little serious damage. Remove his parka, Khrushchev. Once more, Ross was unmanacled. The first stripped from him. His questioner carefully studied the suit he wore under it. Now you will tell us exactly what we wish to hear. There was a confidence in that statement which chilled Ross. Major Kilgarry's had displayed its like. Ash had it in another degree, and certainly it had been present in Baldy. There was no doubt that the speaker meant exactly what he said. He had at his command methods which would wring from his captive the full sum of what he wanted, and there would be no consideration for that captive during the process. His implied threat struck as cold as the glacial air, and Ross tried to meet it with an outward show of uncracked defenses. He decided to pick and choose from his information feeding them scraps to stave off the inevitable, hope dies very hard, and Ross, having been pushed into corners long before his work at the project, had had considerable training in verbal fencing with hostile authority. He would volunteer nothing, let it be pulled from him reluctant word by word. He would spin it out as long as he could and hope that time might fight for him. You are an agent. Ross accepted this statement as one he would neither affirm nor deny. You came to spy under the cover of a barbarian traitor. Smoothly without pause, the man changed language in mid-sentence, slipping from the beaker speech into English. But long experience in meeting the dangerous with an expression of complete lack of comprehension was Ross's weapon now. He stared somewhat stupidly at his interrogator with that bewildered, boyish look he had so long cultivated to bemuse enemies in his past. Whether he could have held out long against the other's skill, for Ross possessed no illusions concerning the type of examiner he now faced, he was never to know. Perhaps the drastic interruption that occurred the next moment saved for Ross a measure of self-esteem. There was a distant boom hollow and thunderous. Underneath and around them, the floor, walls, and ceiling of the room moved as if they had been pried from their setting of ice, and were being rolled about by the exploring thumb and forefinger of some impatient giant. This concludes the reading of Chapter 12.